2: It's been a tough 10 days of news from Israel and Gaza after Hamas staged a vicious massacre and took hostages. As many expect an Israeli ground incursion of Gaza imminently, the UN says more than a million Palestinians, half the population, have heard Israel's warning and have moved south.
1: Israel's Prime Minister has told his war cabinet the entire country is behind them in what he describes as a fateful hour.
2: They're ready to snap into action at any moment in order to wipe out the bloodthirsty monsters who seek to annihilate us.
1: The humanitarian situation is deteriorating, reaching the level of catastrophic.
2: But this isn't just about the past 10 days. So how did we get to this intractable point, this geography and this conflict? And how close have Palestinians and Israelis been to peace? Whether you need a full Beginner's Start Here guide or just a refresh, we're here to help. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, the Israel-Palestinian conflict explained. If you want clarity, years of covering the region and a proper understanding of the history behind it all as well, I know just who to call an old colleague.
3: I'm Kevin Connolly. I'm a former BBC Middle East correspondent and I lived for six years in Jerusalem.
2: We're very, very pleased to have your wisdom on all of this. We're going to try and squeeze, Kevin, around, well, just over 100 years of history... Into 30 Minutes. Yeah. And actually, I was reading a David Onovich piece earlier where he's like, well, should we start at AD 70? To which the answer for today is no.
3: Yeah, the answer is no. Um... (laughs)
2: Um, And I know it's sort of where on earth you draw the line. So we're going to start in 1917. Yes. Tell us why that's where we're starting.
3: Think back to 1917. The First World War is raging. Britain is desperate to pull any diplomatic levers it can to influence the outcome of that war. And we tend to think of the First World War in Britain in particular like this. It is about the collapse of empires Prussia, Russia, and Austro Hungary in Europe, Mm. and the Turkish Empire in the Middle East collapses. The whole of what we call the Middle East, realistically, used to be the Turkish Empire. Turkey is a defeated power in the First World War. Its empire is taken, and Britain and France want territorial gains. So you end up with a bit of a carve up. You know, Britain gets Iraq and Jordan. France gets Syria, and crucially, Britain gets the responsibility for governing Palestine under a League of Nations mandate. So it's in that context, in 1917, that Britain issues the Balfour Declaration, a rather oddly worded declaration, but a recognition of Zionist ambition that there will be a homeland for the Jewish people in the Holy Land.
2: That declaration was a short public statement, signed by the then Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour. A declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, he wrote. Quote, His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. He wrote, nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country.
3: But of course, once the British start governing Palestine, the Palestinian Arab population is hugely resentful of this promise to essentially give away what they consider to be their land. Mm. So Jewish migration Mm. might be a source of problem. So having made a promise... Britain then adopts an extremely cautious and restrictive approach to making good on the promise. And on the other hand, the Jews of Europe, many of whom are coming from places with appalling anti-Semitism in the Russian Empire, the Jews of Europe are hugely resentful, but it's so hard for them to get in to capitalise on that British promise. So even in the 1930s, you know, when it's already clear that very dark times are coming for the Jews of Europe... Mm extremely hard for Jews to enter Palestine. So all of those circumstances happen on Britain's watch.
2: And why is it on Britain's to-do list of geopolitical carving up when anti-Semitism abounds everywhere? Why was the, the idea of a Jewish homeland something which was actively being thought about?
3: Well, you know, it's a very, very interesting question. I've always been told, and I've never seen the cabinet papers, that a Jewish member of the British cabinet wasn't very keen on the Balfour Declaration. And I know lots of Jews who would consider it very useful in a sense, and obviously it chimes with Zionist ambition. But a lot of Jews think it's a bit anti-Semitic, because the underlying idea, if you think about it, is the Jews are terribly powerful in the world. And you know, Britain in 1917 is far from certain to win the First World War. Mm. And the thinking seems to be: look, it would be you sort of get these people on board. You know, they're they're so powerful everywhere. They and there's you know, they're a very anti-Semitic trope that somehow the Jews of the world have got their hands on hidden levers of power. So it makes a lot of Jews think that you know that's that's how the British cabinet was viewing them in 1917. But I suppose Britain just thinks, in a rather ludicrous way, looking back, well, there's no harm in it, is there? So it might be worth a try.
2: So so this is the point where it's being actively posited, but then actually it comes into being post-World War II, not post-World War I. Explain how the actual state comes about then.
3: Well, what I used to say when I lived in Jerusalem, was trying to explain this to visitors and give them a briefing and all the rest of it, is you have to think that the circumstances that created the Holy Land in its current form, required these colossal historical events, World War I on the one hand, World War II, and the Holocaust. Mm. So it's in the aftermath of the Holocaust when the sort of terrible fate of the Jews of Europe is known. And again, there's a sense that the world is being redrawn. It's in that moment that a state of Israel comes to be recognized. Now it's much smaller than the state of Israel as it has turned out today, but there is the recognition that there can be a Jewish state in the Middle East and that has the approval of the international community. But you know you have to say you have to think about the tremendous force and weight of historical circumstance that was influencing decision takers at the time. And then the belief that a more peaceful world could be created. All of those mm. things are there at the birth of the state of Israel. And also, of course, instantly, there is a war with the Arabs.
2: Yes. And when you say that the, the state in its, in its birth is a lot smaller than what we think of as Israel now, if we've got modern Israel, a map of it in our mind's eye now, what are we talking about? And what level of Arab displacement is there?
3: The original state of Israel, as conceived is really quite small. But the End of the 1940s is a time of great violence in the the Holy Land. Britain is a knackered power. There is fighting between Arabs and Jews around Palestine, and Britain is basically trying to stay out of it. But the violence begins even before the declaration of the State of Israel. And as soon as the State of Israel is declared, Arab nations go to war in an attempt to make Israel smaller. Israel wins that ground war, wins more territory, settles its initial frontiers in that war of 1948 and begins the process that leads us to Gaza today. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are displaced. They either flee their homes or they're forced from their homes. They are on the move, what we now call internally displaced people, and many, many of them end up in Gaza. Mm. And the descendants of those people today, hundreds of thousands of them, who used to live in Ashdod or Ashkelon or Lod or Yafo and who now find themselves living in Gaza. It's their descendants and their attitude towards the state of Israel which helps to drive politics and culture in Gaza to this day. So 1948 is a year of tremendous upheaval, but an Israel that we sort of begin to recognise on today's maps begins to emerge, although it's not done yet acquiring territory.
2: Which brings us to another date to forward wind even further. And again, thinking specifically about Gaza, the Six Day War, the Arab Israeli War in, in 1967. Explain what actually begun that conflict and, and what came out of it.
3: What begins the conflict really is Israel's sense that it is about to be attacked and, you know, an extraordinarily successful preemptive military operation, which again, means defeat for the Arab powers, and again, means more territory is acquired. Now, in historical terms, what really matters in '67 is that Israel acquires the east of Jerusalem, at the old city of Jerusalem, and the wall of the Jewish temple, the holiest site to Jews in the world, is suddenly in Israeli hands. That is enormously important. But look what happens in the south of Israel. Gaza had actually been under Egyptian control from 1948 to 1967. Now, suddenly, those people in Gaza we talked about, Mm. refugees and descendants of refugees, they find themselves back under Israeli control again, where they remain to this day, of course. So Gaza has had a period of not being under Israeli control, but it's quite brief, less than 20 years. And it is now very firmly under Israeli control. Israel actually takes a lot of Egyptian territory and gives most of it back when Egypt signs a peace deal with the Israelis, but it doesn't give Gaza back. Uh, And that's where you have Gaza now, with crossings into Israel on one side, and a crossing, which we sometimes forget, into Egypt on the other side. So Egypt also has a degree of control over movement in and out of Gaza, just Mm. as Israel does.
2: Yes. And in that war, it's not just Israel fighting Egypt. It's a sort of whole coalition of Arab nations.
3: Yep. It's not much of an exaggeration to talk about it in terms of being you know, a fight with the Arab world, you know. And that war of 1967 is the first indication of what becomes an enduring reality in Middle East politics of Israeli military superiority. Now, that is tested when the Arab powers try a surprise attack in 1973. That military superiority again reasserts itself. And so that's a continuing reality. And, you know, that Military superiority, the sense of it slightly punctured by the Hamas attack. Mm. But that military superiority that Israel enjoys, you know, remains an enduring reality in the region.
2: So, so thinking about how the territory and the people within it shakes down at the end of that conflict, you mentioned what was happening with Gaza, but Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem, whose hands is all of this settling in?
3: Yes, until 1967, you know, Jordan. Uh, has a border with Israel, which is inside the city of Jerusalem. So the geography of it is entirely different and is hugely changed. That border is pushed away back towards the Jordanian capital Amman. And now I can't really see any Israeli government agreeing to give up control of East Jerusalem or of the old city and of the holy places there. And of course, you know, one of the issues that makes Jerusalem so special makes the place such a tinderbox throughout millennia of history is that sacred places to Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all probably within a square mile of each other in the old city of Jerusalem. So that is a circumstance that leads to the Crusades, Mm. that leads to other conquests, and that leads to continuing tension to this day. And it's interesting, think about the Hamas attack, and let's set aside for a moment the sort of moral repugnance and the horror. Think about this. When they're justifying that attack in their terms, Hamas, what do they talk about? They don't talk about a fear that the Israelis are about to do a diplomatic deal with Saudi Arabia. They talk about the Al-Aqsa Mosque because they know that that is a powerful flag to raise for Arab and Muslim public opinion all over the world. So, you know, that 1967 victory that puts that site under Israeli control is of lasting Mm. significance to all sides there.
2: And... Throughout all these different shifts in borders that we've been talking about and what important sites have been included or excluded from various nations as they've evolved through this, what's actually happening to the people? And thinking specifically about Palestinian people, are they largely staying in situ in these places as control shifts? Are many of them fleeing? Are they being concentrated in places like Gaza? What's happening?
3: They don't really have anywhere else to go. I mean, there are enormous populations of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and in Jordan and elsewhere in the Middle East, but you know, maybe particularly in those two places. So there are huge Palestinian populations. You know, There are places in Jordan which are still you know, refugee camps that were founded from this fighting and where the Palestinian people still live. So mm-hmm. their displacement, again, is another of those awkward, enduring facts of life in the Middle East. Now, as I say, the population of Gaza, they tend to be people who were displaced in the 1948 fighting. How realistic is their aspiration to any kind of right of return, as they call it, you know? Could Israel ever even begin to consider that? You know, Israel questions the legitimacy of handing on refugee status from one generation to another, but many Palestinians who weren't born in 1948 consider themselves refugees from that conflict. And, you know, even if you think that their perception of that is unrealistic, it still has to be accommodated when you're talking about possibly at some point in the future, God knows mm. when, looking for a political solution. You know, there used to be all these stories that Palestinian families would keep the key to the house that they were displaced from, the implication being one day we'll be back. Now i suspect many of them know that that is not you know a realistic political aspiration but it's a cultural and emotional and personal aspiration which helps to shape people's opinions
2: mm. and thinking again about this period post the the six day war and before we get to the 80s and 90s in terms of the palestinian territories israel is a democracy palestinians who is governing them what what rights what access to democracy or not do they have
3: Palestinians are represented by the Palestine liberation organization it's an army it's a political movement it's you know an aspirational representative movement of the Palestinian people but there's no concept in the early part of this period The Palestinians can vote for or against Yasser Arafat. He's a chieftain, in effect. You know, he's not someone who's subject to those kind of diplomatic processes. Actually, I have no doubt Palestinian people probably would have voted for him, but that is not how the PLO is shaped. I mean, you know, for its formative years, the idea of the PLO is to dislodge the Israelis or defeat them in some way. And over time, it becomes clear that even with the support of the war-fighting armies of the Arab world, that's not possible. But, it, you know, it's the focus of, of Palestinian aspiration. And, you know, it shapes what type of political movement they have. And that political movement, as I say, is the PLO. And People you know, will remember Yasser Arafat, who is a hugely influential and admired leader among Palestinians.
1: Thirty years. Homeless. Stateless. Without integrity. I think it is our rights to have an end to this tragedy, to return back to our homeland at least.
3: You know, Palestinians nowadays have doubts over the competence and usefulness of the Palestinian Authority, which is a sort of inheritor organisation from the PLO, but they still venerate, I would say, Arafat's memory.
2: You don't think that in negotiations it's necessary to, to give some indication about your thinking on the question of whether it will be political or military after you have
1: I a state? I think it's better to be left for the Palestinians to discuss it, not me. Perhaps I will not be there. Who knows? We're skipping
2: through such a vast timeline, but let's go to the late 80s. We now know that eventually in the early 90s there was an historic agreement. But before we get to that point, we've got, again, intense fighting from, correct me if I'm wrong, is it 1987 that the first Intifada uh, gets underway? What is that and why does it
3: come about? The Intifada is this sense that the Palestinian people have tired of yeah, what they consider to be a very brutal Israeli occupation. Yeah, And the real resentment in Palestinian society is over the idea that everything about their lives, their economy, their freedom of movement, everything is controlled by the Israelis. If you want to get a work permit to go to Israel, which is very important for the Palestinian economy, that's entirely in the hands of the Israeli security forces. If you're denied a work permit, there's no appeal. You can't do anything about it. You can't work. So your family will be... Very much worse off as a result of that. They find the process bureaucratic, opaque, unfair and unreasonable. The Israeli military presence is all around them. That produces a cocktail of anger and resentment, which boils up into the Intifada, a kind of uprising. (laughs) There are bomb attacks. There are very strict security crackdowns. It is a horrible time. And I think sometimes, you know, when things seem very dark, there's more going on behind the scenes than we realize. This was one of those moments in history
2: Israel and Palestinians 101 with Kevin Connolly continues in a moment, including the closest the two sides have come to a peace settlement. That's next.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online
2: Before we left you, to recap, we went from 1917, the Balfour Declaration and Britain's backing a Jewish state in the region, to 1948 and the actual establishment of the Israeli state. Uh, We've heard about the Six-Day War in 1967 and the one on Yom Kippur in 1973, plus the First Intifada at the end of the 80s, which brings us to the early 90s, when in the midst of that Palestinian uprising, it turns out there's more reason for hope than you might have thought, as Kevin Conley can explain.
3: Because it's a horrible time, there's great surprise when it turns out that secret diplomacy has actually been working towards what we now call the Oslo Accords, this you know, remarkable mm. attempt to breathe some life into the idea of a two-state solution. So it seemed like a real moment of hope. Mm. You know, Israel was led by Yitzhak Rabin, who was a great soldier, a very important military commander in Israeli history, He has the authority that goes with that, which he feels gives him the scope to to offer terms to make peace.
1: The partner with whom we have to negotiate, the partner with whom we'll have to reach the agreement are the Palestinians in the territories.
3: Yasser Arafat and his attitude towards
1: the peace I think is maybe slightly more ambiguous. Peace is not only something to sign in the White House. Peace is more difficult.
3: But again, he has this tremendous authority and he tells his people that it's time to do a deal.
1: Can we do it? This is the real challenge which we are facing. Yes, we will do it. We will do it, we will do it. So, you know,
3: it is a real rarity in the Middle East, a moment when it really looks as though things are going all right.
2: How do those, well, initially secret talks between the two different sides actually get going when there has been, as you've described with the first intifada, such, such intense fighting, such intense ill will on both sides? I mean, how does any attempt at peace, secret or otherwise, actually begin in those conditions?
3: Well, you could ask the same question about the Northern Ireland peace process or perhaps any process. I think what you need in those circumstances are quietly visionary people who recognize that, however bad things are, they always have the capacity to get worse. And that the very fact that things are so dark is a reason to search for the light. And I think that's what you have. You know, you have skilled diplomacy on both sides, you have very good chairmanship you have the support of the united states a number of factors coming together including you know the factor of an exhaustion with violence which makes people ready for a deal and optimists on both sides believe that there is a real chance that this could be a stable and lasting peace and i mean because mm-hmm. you know, we're now so far away from that point yeah. it's easy to forget but that is what people think
1: prime minister ravine Chairman Arafat, welcome to this great occasion of history and hope. What we are doing today is more than signing an agreement, it is a revolution. My people are hoping that this agreement which we are signing today marks the beginning of the end of a chapter of pain and suffering, which has lasted throughout this century.
2: Just explain what came out of of, of the Oslo Accords, what actually shook down.
3: Well, what the Oslo Accords are designed to do is to create a kind of evolving set of political circumstances in which over time more will be done to deliver political authority to the Palestinians, to the PA, and also more economic control, strengthening the Palestinians, giving the Palestinians more authority over territory, giving them security responsibilities in part of the West Bank, but reserving military authority really to the Israeli army in the immediate term. So it's a very well-designed and elegant solution that just doesn't really end up being put in place. Hmm. A lot of Palestinians now would say, look, one of the things it creates is security cooperation between the Palestinian Authority on the one hand and Israel on the other. And you know, lots of Palestinians would say that the PA has just ended up you know, doing Israel's dirty work for it.
2: And you mentioned the idea of a two-state solution. Obviously, that wasn't included in those accords, but just explain what that actually means. And to what extent that it could be seen as a as an endpoint to that agreement evolving
3: who knows what might have happened? I mean the two- state solution in its purest form is a very, very simple idea. It is an independent and free Palestine living harmoniously alongside an independent Israel which has strong security guarantees that that independent Palestine won't be a threat to Israeli integrity, so that's what a two state solution should look like. But I mean, even, you know, when you sped it out in that single sentence, the problem with it is it would require a tremendous amount of trust and goodwill, even to get to the point where it had a workable deal to offer the public on both sides. And then the public on both sides would have to have a huge degree of trust in what has been a hostile entity. So they are fantastically high barriers to cross for anyone who's thinking of designing a two-state solution to this Mm. problem. So I've always thought it would be much more difficult than people thought because, you know, diplomats always bandy the idea around it's just part of the jargon of international diplomacy Oh, you know, we support a two-state solution in the Middle East. Even the most optimistic assessment of it, the Palestinian territories are disjoined from each other. So how these two disjoined territories separated by a big block of Israel would Mm. function as a unitary state Even that was never clear to me if the political circumstances had been ideal. Now, after the latest Hamas attack, the two state solution seems to me to be as mythical as the unicorn.
2: So, if that's, well, not on the cards now, and certainly wasn't on the cards in 1993, the Oslo Accords, as historic as an agreement of that was, wasn't fully implemented, and we even had Yitzhak being assassinated.
3: Yes. Good evening. The people of Israel, who've never before lost a head of government to an assassin's gun, are tonight queuing silently in their tens of thousands to say farewell to Yitzhak Rabin. He was shot dead just over 24 hours ago by a Jewish extremist, shortly after addressing a peace rally. The problem for Rabin is, on the right of Israeli politics, the deal is hated. It seems the capitulation to Israel's enemies, and Rabin becomes a target for the right-wing political parties and the more extreme Israeli right that lies beyond those political
1: parties. Mr Rabin was hit as he reached his car. The police hustled the assassin away. Later he told them that his orders came from God and that he had no regrets, because Mr Rabin's pursuit of peace made him a traitor to his people. The man has been named as Igal Amir, a known Jewish extremist.
3: And of course, the assassination of Rabin is a catastrophe for any possible thought. I would say of a two state solution.
1: The world has lost one of its greatest men, a warrior for his nation's freedom, and now a martyr for his nation's peace. I am very sad and very shocked for this awful and terrible crime. Again, it's one of the brave leaders of Israel and the peacemakers.
2: What happens to Arafat after that?
3: Well, Arafat becomes the leader of the Palestine Authority. He ends up in a compound in Ramallah in the West Bank. And in times of tension with Israel, you know, his compound is surrounded by Israeli armored vehicles. And he lives a very difficult life, I would say. and. How Palestinian perceptions of him changed, it's very difficult for outsiders to get a handle on that because, you know, they are so completely identified with this man as their leader that the idea that he is signed up to something which doesn't really work out very well from their point of view is hard for them to kind of assimilate, I think. But, mm-hmm. you know, he's not a life that ends in political success. I mean he enjoys a better reputation in the wider world as a result of the Oslo Accords and the fact that he was prepared to sign them. But clearly, it does not result in an improvement in the life of his own people, and especially not in their freedom of movement.
2: The other thing that happens around the early 2000s is the second Intifada. ...a series of Palestinian suicide bombings... ...and Israeli reprisals between 2000 and 2005. Now, this has a big impact on public opinion... ...when it comes to any kind of peace deal. Israel's politics take a turn to the right. More on that in a bit. Yasser Arafat dies of ill health... ...although conspiracy theories about the cause of his death never quite go away. So, all in all, the step towards peace looks like a dim memory. Israel pulls its settlers out of Gaza which is quickly followed by Hamas taking control. Back to Gavin.
3: Yeah, look, very simply, Hamas wins an election. You know, Gaza has been a headache for Israel. They have settlers there. The settlers, uh, settlers everywhere do need army protection. That brings the army into contact with the Palestinian population. That is a security headache. I think withdrawing probably makes Israelis think, well, maybe there's going to be some sort of stabilisation. Now, if we're not there in direct occupation... Then Hamas come to power and they win a power struggle with the Palestinian Authority, which leaves them in control of Gaza. And really, that is the political circumstances that we're living with to this day. To pause
2: there for a moment, we now have, at this point 2006, Fatah in control of the West Bank to the east, co-founded by Yasser Arafat, and Hamas in control of the Gaza Strip to the southwest. Hamas, of course, is now prescribed as a terrorist organisation by many Western governments, including the UK and the US. Hamas recently committed those bloody atrocities in Israel. Unlike Fatah, Hamas don't even recognise the state of Israel. They've even wanted the complete destruction of Israel, they've said in the past. So where did Hamas come from?
3: Hamas is born in Gaza. And, you know, this extraordinary leader, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, He's quadriplegic. He's nearly blind. He's this extraordinarily charismatic figure who inspires the idea of Islamic resistance. So Hamas really is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was founded in Egypt in the 1920s. The foundational idea of the Muslim Brotherhood is that Islam is the answer, whatever the question. And the Muslim Brotherhood's tradition is that there's a gun in the background. God is in the foreground. And that is basically the package that Hamas offers the people of Gaza. We talk about them being an Islamist movement, and that's true, of course, but it would be a mistake to conclude from that that Gazans are more religious than people in the West Bank. I would suspect that the real appeal of Hamas is their very successful social programs, which are important in alleviating poverty, Hmm. and the promise of a more confrontational attitude towards Israel than the Palestinian Authority offers.
2: What's happening on the Israeli side of things in terms of the rise of of Netanyahu? When does he first come onto the scene and when do we start to really see things on the Israeli side of things tack further away from the centre and more to the right?
3: Look at Netanyahu this way. Israel's existed for about 75 years and he's been prime minister for 16 of them. So he's an extraordinarily Hmm. dominant figure in modern Israeli politics. He's not loved, I would say. He's generally traded on his reputation as what people used to call a securocrat, you know, a man who can be relied on to use the army and the intelligence agencies to keep the country safe. Now, I'd say that image has suffered quite a blow Mm. uh, because of the events of the last week, but that traditionally has been how he has been seen. You know, he tends to govern with rather odd coalitions. So his own Likud party is on the right of Israeli politics. He governs with parties that represent the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities and now in the current cabinet with people who represent the settlers. So he is putting the influence of the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers front and centre in Israeli politics. And yeah, that is something else that is going to make any kind of move towards compromise in the future, if they were ever likely, in the presence of those sort of people obviously makes them less likely.
2: So thinking about then the last well, just under 20 years or so, where we've got Hamas in charge of Gaza, we've got Netanyahu broadly running Israel. What progress was actually made in terms of getting people back round the table again, some kind of hope of peace or constructive talks?
3: Well, look, the Americans have had a crack at this. When I was in the Middle East, John Kerry was always at least talking about this. I, You know, last time I was in Jordan, I was having dinner in a restaurant in Amman. There was John Kerry with a very senior member of the Jordanian royal family, you know, trying to see what could be done. But the honest truth is that I don't see any progress. And, you know, the Oslo Accords should teach journalists humility. Nobody saw them coming, and mm-hmm. they did come. I would be astonished if any parallel secret process is underway now. I think the politics are as moribund as they appear to the casual outsider looking in. And that is a huge danger because when the politics is more abundant, it's not moving, then resentments, fears, anxieties and anger are very easy to stoke.
2: And so there was lots of diplomacy happening from John Kerry and others under the Obama years. Under the Trump years, we had the Abraham Accords, which normalised some relations between Israel and some Arab countries. I mean... <sighs> How much was that shifting the dial?
3: Look, I think there's an enormous strategic importance for Israel in building normalised relationships with the Arab world. But the lesson of the last week is that Palestinians will hugely resent the idea that their interests can be marginalised, that Israel can do a peace deal with Saudi Arabia without doing something for the Palestinians. You can't marginalise that question. We've been talking about history going back over a hundred years, we could have come back to the Crusades. What happens in the Holy Land, in Palestine, in Israel, in the Palestinian territories, call them what you will. What happens there matters enormously. And if the Donald Trump-sponsored contacts between Israel and the wider Arab world are perceived as having put the Palestinian question to one side, then I think everybody now understands that that is not a viable way mm. to proceed in the Middle East. I have no prescription for what would be a viable way, but I can recognise something that doesn't work when I see it not working.
2: Thinking then about what's happened in the last week in the context of the last hundred years or so that we've just discussed, I mean, are each side as far apart as they could ever have been.
3: Yes, I think they are. I think the disgusting immorality of the attack on innocent and defenceless men, women and children, the idea that there's no such thing as an Israeli, that will seem morally repugnant to millions and millions of people all around the world in the West, certainly in Israel. There'll be a strong sense in the Arab world of victimhood on the Palestinian side. There will be many victims on the Palestinian side. I don't think the political circumstances were very encouraging for anything that could be talked of in terms of diplomatic progress anyway. It would be incredibly hard for any leader to start talking about peace in the current circumstances. Israelis want retribution and they want security. Palestinians want their suffering under aerial bombardment to be recognised. People aren't thinking about the other side at the moment. They're thinking about themselves because that's what happens when bad things happen to us.
2: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Luke Jones, and my guest, former BBC Middle East correspondent, Kevin Connolly. If you want to know more about the Israel-Gaza conflict, our experts have picked out the best history books, memoirs and novels, which can all help you understand what is happening. We'll put a link to that in the description, where you can also find a link to The Times' Israel-Palestinian Conflict Explainer, with some details that, believe it or not, we didn't have space for. We've also got maps of the region as well. The executive producer today was Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. We'll have more on Israel and Gaza later this week. If there are other aspects of the conflict you'd like to hear more about, you can send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Goodbye.
0: Where's that dust coming from?